pace of change in the innovation economy is so rapid that one of the key challenges of entrepreneurs and executives who want to engage in the civic process is that our government, especially our federal government, was not designed for quick action. In fact, they feared quick action, and our founding fathers were very clear about that, in that they wanted it to be a deliberative process. So how does one match disruption with deliberative when you're talking about the pace of private sector changes in our life that don't always match the pace of public sector policymakers. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and with me this week is my co-host, Kate Meese, and our topic this week is leadership in a period of rapid change. Hello, Kate. How are you this week? I'm doing great. Glad to be back on the podcast. Yeah, this, and we have a great guest today, and I think we have a really meaty topic in terms of how rapidly change is occurring in our society and how that's out of pace with our political systems and and maybe even our, you know, our hardwiring of humans, our ability to adapt and adjust to change, um, if not on an individual level, maybe on a societal level. So, Kate, why don't we um, just get to our guest? So today we are so pleased to have with us Carl Guardino, who is a, one of the Silicon Valley's most distinguished business and community leaders. Carl is the president and CEO of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group which represents nearly 400 of Silicon Valley's most respected employers. He was appointed by former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger to the California Transportation Commission and has been reappointed twice by Governor Jerry Brown. The San Jose Mercury News named Carl Guardino one of the five most powerful people in Silicon Valley. So, Carl, thanks so much for being with us today. Kate, I'm honored to be with you. So the topic of this podcast is leadership in a time of change. And to provide some context for why we decided to explore this topic, we're, we're finding that we're really living in a time of unprecedented disruption, as we're all experiencing. And that's providing unparalleled opportunity, but it's also resulting in vast dislocation as well. In 1900, it was taking 20 to 30 years for technology to take a step big enough that the world became uncomfortably different. And now it's closer to five to seven years from the time something is introduced to being ubiquitous and the world being uncomfortably changed. And given that Silicon Valley is at the bleeding edge of innovation, Carl, I'd love to to hear from you. What are leaders you work with doing to stay relevant as individuals and leaders of large businesses? It's fascinating, Kate, in that the 
pace of change in the innovation economy is so rapid that one of the key challenges of entrepreneurs and executives who want to engage in the civic process is that our government, by and large, especially our federal government, was not designed for quick action. In fact, they feared quick action, and our founding fathers were very clear about that, in that they wanted it to be a deliberative process. So how does one match disruption with deliberative when you're talking about the pace of private sector changes in our life that don't always match the pace of public sector policymakers. That's a huge challenge that we have and a huge challenge we have when we're bringing CEOs and senior officers to Sacramento and Washington, D.C. How do you explain to someone at that level whose products and services may only Uh, be around for 18 to 24 months that the policy ramifications could take three, four, five, ten years to enact. Yeah, I read that it it takes 10 to 15 years to understand a new technology and then build out new laws and regulations to protect society. But as I said, you know, we're, we're looking at a five to seven year turnaround when technology is introduced and widespread. And we've seen this with autonomous Vehicles now coming out, we're in that dynamic tension now. We saw this with Uber and Lyft and Airbnb and the sharing economy and other innovations that have come out of the Silicon Valley. So, you know, in addition to this this policy piece of it, which is clearly a disconnect, have you, have you found certain things that individuals do as leaders to be resilient and to put themselves in a position to come up with innovative ideas when things are moving so quickly and and really most leaders aren't able to stay ahead. But in the Silicon Valley, leaders are continuing to be out in front with new ideas. How how are you guys doing that? (laughs) And that is so challenging. What we try to explain to executives constantly is, you know, we have a choice as executives. We can be engaged or we can be enraged. And it's much more productive and positive to actually be engaged with policymakers making incredibly difficult decisions in their difficult processes. And we, again, try to remind executives, if you're just going to sit on the sidelines and be frustrated and wring your hands, not only are you not going to be successful in explaining to policymakers the ramifications of a product or services, but you are probably going to end up as dinner rather than at the dinner table when those decisions are made. Uh, most executives get that, uh, but it still is very hard for people to understand. Uh, let's just take one policy area and the vast differences in the landscape since it was last addressed. It has been since 1986, 31 years ago, since our federal government has made major changes in federal tax law. 31 years ago, eBay didn't exist. PayPal didn't exist. Google didn't exist. Facebook didn't exist. You mentioned Airbnb, Uber and Lyft. None of those companies even existed, let alone a twinkling of uh, in our eye of the technologies that they would be creating and the tax laws haven't changed in a major way in this nation for 3 decades wow. that's 
very difficult for companies to wrap their minds around. Do you find that this administration, obviously one of their big issues is tax reform. They're proposing major tax reform. Are you finding them, the, what they're proposing to be where we need to go in terms of tax policy to be more responsive to a changing economy? Three words, we shall see. So far, there has been no defined legislative uh, um, bill that has come out to show what tax reform will look like. We're told that probably won't be around until at least the August time frame. And with all things in life, details matter. And the details around the complexities of American tax law, both corporate and individual, are extensive. So we really can't comment right now on something that hasn't been defined other than at best in a bullet point type of format. Well, and maybe I could I, I can appreciate that. Maybe just to take the question just a little bit further. Do you find this administration more responsive in terms of um, listening to the business community, listening to uh, the Silicon Valley executives in terms of change and how to be more um, responsive to business? That is such a good question. And we have to realize in the United States that business is not a monolith that thinks alike or is impacted in the same way on different policy areas. And as has always been noted, some administrations will understand the business community writ large better than others uh, by, based on their backgrounds or their philosophies. What do we know about this particular administration? Uh, the President of the United States comes from a business background, a family business, a business that's focused primarily on real estate and development. Uh, and then you look at the innovation economy, which are overwhelmingly the, the significant players are publicly traded companies. The president's company is not publicly traded with a board of directors and independent board members. The president doesn't have a board of directors, let alone an independent board. And we're in the innovation economy spaces and the president's business background is not in the innovation economy spaces. So there's not as much common ground as one would think if you're just looking from, you know, the moon down to earth that, hey, a business person must understand all sectors of the business community. That means it is our responsibility to build a bridge, a bridge between the Earth's innovation capital of Silicon Valley with the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., both to Congress as well as this new administration. And relationships of trust take time. And we're going to have to wait and see. Some of the early comments around immigration, which is critical to the health of not only the innovation economy, but to economies impacting our nation, whether they're high-tech, low-tech, or no-tech, there isn't as much common ground as one would hope about the important role that immigrants have played always in our country, let alone in the innovation economy. Tax reform, it's hard to tell. The president has called for comprehensive tax reform. That's good. Our nation needs it. But again, details matter. We're going to try to work with the administration and then wait and see. We've heard about a trillion dollars in infrastructure investment. The leadership group believes that we need to make major uh, improvements in our infrastructure, 
of all types in this country, but we need to see specifics. Where will that trillion dollars come from? To what would it be? And what is the process of selecting how it would be used? And all of that matters. Cybersecurity, data privacy, these are all vital issues to people's personal freedoms as well as companies' ability to exist and compete in a global economy where there's often actors that want to uh, break in and take people's data. So there's there's a lot of issues that we're going to have to work through with this new administration as we have with past administrations. Carl, I want to pick up on the, the infrastructure piece of this. I know a, a major challenge in the Silicon Valley has been congestion. And in your role, both at the California Transportation Commission and then also as the, the head of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, I know that you guys haven't been waiting on the federal government to address this challenge and would love for you to share with our listeners how, how congestion has impacted business in the Silicon Valley and how you have responded. In the Silicon Valley and Bay Area, when we ask individuals about the concerns they talk about in their living rooms, or we're asking CEOs and senior officers about the concerns that they face as companies here in the region in their boardrooms, the common themes are the same, and they're the flip side of the same coin, housing and traffic. So if you flip a coin and it comes down heads, H, that's housing affordability, or T, tails, that's traffic congestion. Those are the top two issues that our citizens are concerned about and that our employers are concerned about. That common ground is a plus because that means we can try to tackle solutions together. And as with all big challenges and big investments, if it involves government, then it should be all levels of government in tackling issues like traffic and like housing. And that's why it's so important to know if we're going to have a strong federal partner when it comes to infrastructure investment around transportation. Our local citizens and citizens here in this region and even in this state have said, yes, we're going to be visionary and we're going to invest and we're going to improve our transportation systems by doing so. Uh, we're waiting to see with the president's budget coming out at any moment where the federal government will be on transportation investment and how they view improvements that are so important to the lifeblood of the Bay Area. And I'll give you one example on one where the Silicon Valley Leadership Group has been a top leader for 21 years, and that's the goal of electrifying and modernizing what's known as the Caltrain Commuter Rail Line, a line that runs 79 miles from Gilroy, think garlic capital of the world, through San Jose, our nation's 10th largest city, and on to San Francisco, an iconic world-class city. And that 79-mile line carries about 65,000 weekday passenger trips. If we electrify it, we nearly double that ridership. We make it 97% cleaner. We make it 15% faster in that corridor. And we are going to have a world-class system that a world-class economy deserves. Now, we've always had strong federal partnerships with these major transportation projects, and we've cobbled 
together 70% of the funds, locally, regionally, and as a state, still waiting word on whether we'll have a federal partner for the final 30%. I think we will. I'm optimistic, thanks to the incredible work of U.S. Senators Dianne Feinstein, Kamala Harris, and our congressional delegation. But what should have been a marriage of mutual goals around our economy and our quality of life for the Bay Area has been a bit more of a wrestling match to help uh, help make clear to the federal government how important this economy and therefore this infrastructure improvement is to America's economy. That's great. And you also mentioned affordable housing, which people all over the, the nation are grappling with, but certainly in the Silicon Valley, it's a, a tremendous challenge with the highest median housing prices in the nation. So can you say a little more about how you're addressing the, the housing crisis and how that's impacting local businesses? As strong as Silicon Valley and the Bay Area's innovation economy is, and it truly still is the epicenter on earth for innovation, we still have tremendous challenges. And we've mentioned two of them, uh, transportation and housing. The third one is probably education. But let's stay on housing affordability for a moment. The median cost of a home in Silicon Valley when we last looked at the five other top tech regions in the United States last August, the, the valley cost is 945000 A median-priced home in the Seattle area, one of our five top competitor regions, is about 345000 In Austin, Texas, it's about 250,000. You get the picture quickly that it is very tough to compete when it comes to the cost of living for world-class employees when they may have choices in some of the other top tech regions in our country where they can buy a home today rather than maybe someday being able to buy a home. The rental prices are just as tough as the for sale home prices as well. So it becomes an issue of are we going to whine about it or when? And just as with our transportation work, there are so many ways through policies, programs, and projects that we can win to provide more homes, more affordable to more families on every, every range of the income scale. That's great. And you brought up education as well, and I'm, I'm really interested in hearing how the region is responding to the evolving workforce needs. I, I think about how quickly things are changing all over the nation and the challenge to keep pace with that uh, in terms of training and, and uh, workforce development. And that pace is so much quicker in the Silicon Valley. So I'd love to hear how the region is hopefully at the leading edge on, on training a workforce as well. And when it comes to education, we always try to remember in Silicon Valley, it's cradle through career. From the moment we're born to the moment we retire, we have to focus on education. So we have two big challenges in Silicon Valley. One is the diversity of our workforce is not where I think any of us want it to be. Yes, our companies are incredibly competitive and successful. We would be even more competitive and successful to the extent we can further diversify our workforce. Let me give some examples. In Kindergarten today, 
in the Silicon Valley and the Bay Area, more than 50% of our kids are Latino, Hispanic background. 50%. Yet when it comes to reading at grade level, third grade reading, only three of 10 Latino children are reading at grade level. And that's a kind of a gatekeeper skill because up to third grade, you're learning to read. After third grade, you're reading to learn. So if you're not reading at grade level by the third grade, it correlates to very high outcomes of not finishing high school, let alone ever stepping foot onto a college campus, let alone earning a degree. So diversity is a big challenge that we face that we have to tackle, not just in ethnicity, but gender diversity as well. It'll make our companies stronger and our communities stronger in the process. The next is we have a community college system in California that's important and dynamic with 2.1 million students a year, 65% of whom are not white, more than half who are not male. When we look at our ability to greatly diversify our workforce by working with our community colleges to provide graduates with two-year degrees or even certified courses who could step into our companies with strong middle class and upper middle class jobs, we're going to be that much stronger as an economy and as a region with communities that will be better served with workers who will be trained, ready, and able to fill those tech jobs. That's really impressive, Carl. And I'm wondering, as as we see cities across the nation competing for businesses and jobs, and you mentioned some of the areas, uh, Seattle and Austin, that compete with the Silicon Valley, what, what in your mind can cities do to retrain and attract businesses? And you've mentioned, of course, transportation, housing, and the workforce piece of this being critical elements. Are there en- other amenities that employers are looking for that you think is important for creating a place where um, employees and um, employers want to be? Such a good question, Kate. First, I, I would encourage people to go to our website for the Silicon Valley Leadership Group and look at our recently published Silicon Valley Competitiveness and Innovation Project, where we really look at our strengths and celebrate them, but also at our challenges, our weaknesses, and how we need to address them. Because those five other top tech regions, Austin, Boston, Seattle, New York City, and the Southern California counties of San Diego, Orange, and L.A. are not sitting back. They are working every day to be stronger than we are, and that's good. Competition is healthy. So I I would encourage people to look at our Silicon Valley Competitiveness and Innovation Project. What can we learn as local communities and regional economies about retaining and growing a strong business climate that creates well-paying jobs with great benefits? Well, one of my mentors is the former CEO of Applied Materials, Jim Morgan. Jim and his wife, Becky, are two of the most philanthropic leaders that Silicon Valley has ever known. Jim is famous for saying that companies go where they're wanted and stay where they're appreciated. So let's remember, companies, their employees, play key roles in our communities, and we should ask companies and their employees to be engaged, 
helpful citizens. Yet we also need to listen to our companies and their employees about what's going to help them stay competitive. We've mentioned this morning uh, on this podcast what we call the issues. The T is for traffic, H is for housing, E is for education. The issues facing most of our regions, certainly the Bay Area region. So let's start with a focus on those. And then never forget that when an area has a high cost of living, that's not just hard for tech employees, that's hard for employees and families across the economic spectrum. So we also have to look at our tax policies. And how does it impact real people often struggling to get by? What is the regulatory climate that's going to make our businesses good actors in terms of fair and transparent regulations, but not regulations that are actually going to set us back because they're not transparent and they're overly cumbersome? So there is so much of a delicate balance that we see that our communities and our cities and our companies have to strike together if we're all going to win and succeed together in the innovation economy. Great. So last question. So given what you know from the businesses you work with, what should current leaders be preparing for? What what types of innovations do you see out on the horizon? Kate, the question is so good and so important because disruption is happening at such a rapid scale. And the disruptions that we're seeing today have exciting ramifications. You mentioned um, autonomous vehicles earlier. What an exciting opportunity we have for safety of our vehicles in that space and lives saved, fossil fuels not burned, so many benefits. But let's also never forget that 28 of our 50 states, their biggest job sector includes people who drive. And when we have disruptive technologies, that often impacts real people. And we have to be thinking clearly as a society that we can't stop innovation and nor should we stop innovation in most cases. But that doesn't mean we can be cavalier about the very real human impact that can have on individuals and families struggling to get by, wondering where that paycheck is going to come from if their trucking job, their taxi cab job, their rideshare company job, or so many other jobs that are based on driving or logistics will go as we have more autonomous technologies in society. These are tough questions that we need to seriously consider as adults. I couldn't agree more. So thanks so much, Carl, for being with us. Your leadership is truly, truly inspiring, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us and share some of your insight with our listeners. Kate, the work that you do at the Local Government Commission with Leaders for Livable Communities we think is vital. So whenever we can help, please let me know. Much appreciated. Take care. So, Kate, that was a really interesting conversation we had with Carl. Anything jump out at you or stick with you from what Carl had to say? Well, Carl always has so much valuable insight. I think one of the things that that I've been struggling with that. he laid a tremendous foundation for is the need for individual resilience and 
especially as decision makers in a community, whether that's in the private sector, as many of the the businesses that Carl works with are, or in the public sector, like our local elected officials, there's a need to be able to to put yourself in a situation where you can learn and adapt and be malleable. And that's, that's a really tough thing to do as human beings, but it's going to be increasingly critical that we build that, that resiliency and diversity into our lives so that we can see things through new frames, new perspectives, and continue to evolve and hopefully um, keep pace with the, the change as, as much as humanly possible. Yeah, I think it was also interesting when he talked about you know the challenge of uh, our political system not being at the same pace as our rate of change in terms of technology, and you know then there's then so there's our political system and then there's our, our society as a whole, and I think we're at this moment where we're having these discussions and arguments about things like Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and and healthcare and what is the role of government. And I'm not sure that we're having those conversations in the face of what is the world going to be looking like 10 years from now, 20 years from now. We seem to be having those conversations based on how the world looked 10 and 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there's a big leap that our our political and our civic systems need to make to catch up with the technology. So I think um, we said we would close out these shows with um, things that caught our eye in the news and Anything this week that jumps out at you, Kate? Yeah, well, I've been thinking a lot about bicycling this month because it's National Bike Month. And last week was Bike to Work Week. Friday was Bike to Work Day. So in thinking about some of the congestion challenges Carl brought up and um, the need to increase physical activity for people, Reading a lot of articles about where we're really at in in the transition to active transportation and more bicycling and walking. And despite the fact that there's been all this increased activity around this month, month, which is really great, and some, you know, movement towards bike share programs in over 60 cities now across the U.S., we're seeing bike lanes popping up. We're hearing this debate about whether bike lanes um, could introduce more gentrification. So we're hearing a lot about bicycling. But Richard Florida says that really this urban bike boom is part of a optical, an optical illusion that it still makes up such a small percent of our, our transportation pie. We're seeing an increase in commuting, uh, more than 60% from 2000 to 2013, but still nationally less than 1% of people commute by bike um, compared to 86 commuting by car. So in the context of infrastructure costs and congestion and um, health-related impacts and air pollution, there's so much more opportunity for us to increase bicycling and, and find a way to really make it a more significant part of the, the mobility and commuter pie. And we've seen that happen successfully in other cities. So I think it's something that, you know, I want to do more work to raise the visibility that we're not there yet. (laughs) We've got a really long way to go. And this month has, has oriented me around um, really wanting to, to move faster and get further on, on bicycling as a transportation mode. 
Kate, you might want to go back. We, we I had a chance to interview uh, Carlton Reed, um, who has a new book out from Island Press a couple of weeks ago called Bike Boom. And Carlton, uh, you might find it very interesting what he has to say. He studied kind of bikes throughout history, biking throughout history and through across different societies in terms of what percentages of a vehicle uh, or mobility percentage of mobility is bikes versus cars. So um, you might want to go back and, and listen to that podcast. It might be helpful to you. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I will just, I mentioned, you know, this debate around gentrification, and I will just quickly say that there are studies now looking at this question, and what the preliminary studies are showing is that bike commuting is not statistically associated with income inequality or segregation. So I just, I want to put that out there because this is something that has come up in in community development and community improvement projects where the second there's a bike lane, um, there's a concern that that comes with the threat of gentrification. And um, as far as these studies are showing, that that isn't the case to date. Yeah, and I think the, the, the emphasis of the interview with Carlton was the fact that we're nowhere near a boom in biking right now. Yep. In fact, in the United States in 1970 to 74 was a much bigger percentage of the population was actually biking than they are now. Um, so it was a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating read and it was a fascinating interview. A lot of things, a lot of misconceptions about biking and what will support biking and what will not support biking. Um, I saw two, two stories. What I'm kind of struck with lately, Kate, is feeling like, uh, it's the best of times. It's the worst of times. You hear one story, one minute that makes you very hopeful. And then a story that, you know, the next day that, has you very worried about the future. And and this week was no exception. Two articles in the New York Times, one about the fact that one really exciting uh, article about how China and India are making much faster strides on climate change and greenhouse gas reduction than anticipated. And uh, unfortunately, also at the same time, a story about Antarctica and how it is collapsing at a rate much faster than was anticipated and that that will likely lead to a sea level rise of six feet by the end of this century. And thinking about that's a, just a huge displacement in coastal communities around the world. So those are the two kind of stories, both out of the New York times this week that, that caught my eye. Yeah, that's interesting. I recently heard a, a presentation that was comparing you know, how do, how do we think about the pace of change needed to tackle such a complex issue as climate change? And they were comparing this to the campaigns and the movement, the anti-smoking movement, and showed that if we followed that same trajectory, um, you know, we would not be significantly reducing greenhouse gas emissions until 2150, which is, is far too late. And knowing that this is an even more complex and politicized issue even than smoking, um, that didn't give me a lot of positive hope, (laughs) a lot of hope, period. Now, that said, it is very encouraging to hear that we are seeing other countries step up. And certainly, I've always had a lot of hope in looking at the amazing things cities and counties are doing so, and the the work of states as well, the subnational leaders in this space. So, the work continues. Certainly, the the rate of the speed and the scale of this needs to be dramatically increased. So that's really our challenge. Kate, thank you for another great interview this week. Thanks for having me. 
And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio. 